Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Manisha Krishnan, Senior Editor at Vice. Welcome back to Shortcuts. Hello. Today on the show, the wait is over, youth of Canada. Much music is back in TikTok form. Also, the last days of the shock jock. A talk radio host goes out, not with a bang or a whimper, but with a casual racist slur on a work chat. Glad to have you back. Glad to be here. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Sam Lehman, Candace Safanovs, Thomas Upjohn, Tim Jessup, Alexandra Begin, Jake Sticka, Julie Ford, and Jody. Hi, my name is Jody and I'm a software engineer in Montreal. I support Canada Land because of the excellent reporting and storytelling on topics important to me as a Canadian. Each new season of Commons is better than the last. Thunder Bay is eye-opening and masterfully told, and I'm always eager to hear how each new guest on Shortcuts is going to take Jesse down a peg. Keep up the good work. So, Manisha, uh... Did you catch the news? Much music, Risen from the Dead, in partnership with TikTok. 
I did. And thank you so much, Jesse, for sending me down this rabbit hole and through at the Sox Twitter feed. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get to Ed. Here's the news from Bell from their press release uh, last week. With hosts and creators that speak directly to Gen Z and younger millennials, the all-new multi-platform Much Music stays true to its spirit as a seminal brand with an authentic voice, said Stuart Johnston. Senior Vice President, Sales and Sports, Bell Media. Tailor-made for today's always-on youth audience, Much Music doubles down as the essential destination for music and pop culture content. I am a uh, Gen Xer who remembers Much Music from its heyday. You are, I guess, an elder millennial, Manisha? Whoa. I guess you're not. So I just, you know, we have to have truth. Middle age. Millennial. I'm 34. Thank you very much. So I don't know if you qualify as a younger millennial, but what is your relationship to the Much Music brand? Is it the essential destination for music and pop culture content to you? I mean, I my initial two thoughts were, yeah, I don't know if this is really going to work. And also, could I be a VJ? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> because truth be told, Jesse, my musical taste has not actually evolved that much uh, since much as heyday. Um, I feel like if if Vice got a hold of my Spotify most played list, I probably would lose my job, to be honest with you. But yeah, no, I used to watch much music. Of course I did. I watched the countdown and, you know the tree toss, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but what the hell is much music on TikTok? Like, will there be VJs on TikTok? So, okay, I, I did check out the teaser video in research for doing this interview, and yes. all it seemed to be was like a slightly different much logo, like that old kind of globe logo that they had. So I don't fully get it because I don't actually know how they're going to do music videos on TikTok, since it's only like 60 seconds, seems to be suggesting that they're going to use influencers. Bottom line, I don't really understand it. I felt like the press release was fairly vague. Yeah, I think that this idea that um, they, and here's another quote from their press release, they've played an essential role in shaping the musical landscape for generations. Uh, maybe that was once true, but for their intended audience, which is not a 43-year-old like me or a 34-year-old like you, but like, a, I guess a 14-year-old is the target audience for Much Music. I don't know that Much Music means anything. I mean, Much Music is something that people have heard of. So it's not like there are many Canadian media brands that even have name recognition. So maybe there's some value in resuscitating this? So the thing is, we are in an era of reboots. Um, and so I feel like there's people who are probably mis nostalgic about much music, but are those people going to be on TikTok? You know, I kind of doubt it. I'm barely on TikTok. I mean, basically, if somebody sends me a funny TikTok, that's like me being on TikTok. Um, that's like the extent of it. So I feel like for the TikTok audience, a lot of them are going to be hearing about much music for the first time. So I guess it's whatever iteration they decide to go with, that's going to be what people think it is. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear from their language that this is just sort of like a an advertising play where they're going to basically make a claim that they have the youth audience or they have access to the youth audience and somehow they can integrate a brand. Like in some kind of a 60-second package, there's going to be music, there's going to be some kind of an influencer or some sort of commentary on the music, and there's going to be sponsored messaging. And that this is going to connect with, with the kids. 
Yeah. So they're kind of relaunching, I guess, three Much Music shows, Video on Trial, Intimate Interactive, and Much Music Spotlight, which, by the way, Jesse, do you actually remember any of those shows? I remember Video on Trial, which I think was a later thing, and then no, (laughs) and then no, I don't. I was like, what are these shows? Like, I didn't remember them really. So I went and checked it out. And Much Music Spotlight found an old episode featuring Beck, which he was just so out of, like, out of his mind high is what he <laughs> sounded like. And it was, in it, you know, insightful quotes such as, were you surprised at how big Loser was? And he replied, I guess. <laughs> Spotlight. Um, so... I can't wait for these incisive interviews to return. I mean, I remember video on trial was considered like uh, like the fact that you'd have people commenting on the video during the video was like, how dare they interrupt the music? Like, I was aware of Ed the Sock making fun of music videos while they were playing. But this was in an earlier day of mainstream media on television. You could see a band that you like maybe play on Saturday Night Live once every four months. There'd be a band that you like. Or you could wait till 2 a.m. when Much Music would play a video from them. And <laughs> that's the way it was back then. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that you and I are like the best people to be uh, even discussing this because like my takes are so basic. Like literally when the pandemic started, I was watching music videos and I was like, wow. Music videos, like, they're pretty cool, huh? (laughs) I don't know why you're counting yourself, but, I mean, you you work for Vice, the youth media brand par excellence. I mean, you know, who else can pimp out youth audiences to advertisers if not Vice? I I mean, if you and I are the wrong people to comment on this, surely Ed the Sock. (laughs) I don't even know how to finish that sentence. Okay, so, yeah, of course, the news of much music coming back was fodder for Ed in Twitter form, who was very upset because... He claims that he pitched the idea to the executives and they told him three months ago they had no interest, no plans to use much music just three months ago. And then he says, suspicious. I guess his suspicion is, is that like it never occurred to them that maybe much music should be reborn until Stephen Kersner, who is the person who does that, the saw came in and said, hey, you should relaunch. Much music. And they said, wait, 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 wait. Ed is not actually a sock. Yeah. I hate to, uh, (laughs) I hate to kill that for you. Wow. Yeah. And they stole his idea, I guess is the implication. And he's very angry about it. Yeah. So I guess Ed feels like they're ripping off his new venture, new music nation. I can't really weigh in on that one way or another. You know, I'm sure he does feel that way. He has started this sort of hashtag campaign called Bell Let's Sock. Um, I personally hadn't heard of New Music Nation before I was poking around in service of coming on Canada land, but he's clearly worked up. Shady things do happen in this industry. So, you know, I'm not going to outright say that he's lying because I really have no idea. I have no dog in this fight. I have a sock in this fight because, you know, let's dispense with much music and, and talk about Ed the Sock. Why not? I don't know what happened here. Can I digress into this for a minute? Go right into it. <laughs> I know this guy a little bit. You know, I had him on the show in the early days of Canada Land, and Stephen was a perfectly nice guy who was in this dilemma. You know, like we had a meal together, and he was like, 
Jesse, it's not fair that Ed the Sock should be disrespected and dispensed with. Like, this was a truly famous Canadian thing in the media. Like, that's rare. Like, why doesn't anyone value the fact that Ed the Sock is known to hundreds of thousands of people? Why can't I get back on TV with Ed the Sock? And, you know, my advice to him was like, look, man, stop asking for permission. And I don't think you need the Sock. If you want to go out and do stuff, just do it. Anyone can start a podcast or do a thing. Just go do a thing. And, and I don't think you need to have a sock puppet. You can just try to find a new place for yourself within the media. And no, he was really committed to the, to the sock. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, I'm not being a human. And you know what? I don't. I would find it quite jarring to see him without the sock. You wouldn't even need to know. It would just be like, <laughs> like let there be second acts in Canadian public life. Let him just, you know, let him try. Mm -hmm. And it would feel, I think, otherwise mean for me to be telling tales at a school about like just like a guy who works in media who wants to work, God bless him, except for what he actually ended up doing, which was relaunching as Ed the Sock, fine, that's his business, but I don't really understand how the world of paid political punditry and partisan hack commentary works, but the new iteration of Ed the Sock on Twitter is a liberal party sock puppet. Okay, this was also my sense, and I was going to ask you, is he just kind of a liberal partisan now who occasionally tweets problematic stuff about race? This is what I need from Ed the Sock. The arms sale to Saudi Arabia is a contract that Trudeau inherited, not one that he initiated. Like, what the fuck? Why is Ed the Sock standing up for Canadian arms sales to Saudi Arabia? How has the media math been so transformed that rather than making fun of like a Beck video, Ed the Sock is saying that it's okay that we're selling weapons of war to Saudi Arabia and it's not really Trudeau's fault, which it is. That's been proven. They actively engaged in that contract. I do not know exactly how the economics of Ed the Sock's partisan hackery works. I don't know where the money is coming from. It's weird and it's <laughs> constant and it's aggressive. I think I smell Canada Land's new investigative <laughs> podcast. What the fuck happened with Ed the Sock? Uh. <laughs> Manisha, uh, stuff happens that doesn't get enough attention. We duly note it. What do you have? Yeah, so I wanted to duly note CBC News' editor-in-chief, Frody Fenland, hosted a blog yesterday announcing that the CBC will be turning off comments on its Facebook posts for the next month as an experiment. And basically, he said that, you know, the hateful comments on Facebook add to the stress and anxiety of journalists, as well as the CBC's audience. And so they are just going to allow commenting on the actual articles on CBC's website, but they're completely shutting them down for Facebook. I thought it was an interesting kind of experiment. It inspired a trending hashtag for the entire day nationally, where thousands and thousands of people in response to that said, defund the CBC. People were, were appalled that CBC was turning off comments on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, personally, as a journalist, I've never found the Facebook comments to be particularly enlightening. As a tool, you know, they probably have helped me a handful of times find sources. 
They are often just a complete dumpster fire of sexism and racism. And I think the other thing that we have to consider is that when we interview people with traumatic stories and then they go and read all these horrible comments on Facebook, you know, it's disgusting and it's re-traumatizing to them. And I've had sources say to me that they were very concerned about that or even that they maybe didn't want to talk to me because they didn't want to deal with the Facebook comments. And I think it's bad enough when journalists have to deal with it. You know, I'm a woman of color. I write a lot about race, so I do have to kind of deal with that a lot. I don't read Facebook comments generally, and I do have a fairly thick skin. But, you know, having a thick skin also shouldn't be the price of admission to having this job. But that aside, I do think a lot about our our sources and the subjects of our stories. This might turn into a bit of a segment and more than a duly noted. I got into this discussion yesterday with Denise Balkasun and others on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I have some thoughts about this. And I want to preface this just by saying, like, there is no question that to be subjected to hateful, angry, often violent, sexually violent comments is something that disproportionately women journalists and journalists of color are subjected to. Like, it's been maybe three or five times in my life that I've had a day where I've gotten sent racist comments, uh, you know, gas chamber memes, death threats to me. Mm -hmm. It's not about having a thick skin. It fucks up your Mm well-being. So, which is not to say that I have any idea what you go through, but like... What a weird position for the CBC to say, from now on, we are still going to use Facebook, but we're going to talk and you can't talk back. Well, is that actually true, though? Because you can still talk, you can still share the CBC's articles on your Facebook and make comments. If you have a complaint, you can still comment on their article. You can file a complaint with the CBC's ombudsman. You can use Twitter. I mean, there's still other avenues to engage, I think. And I think your argument is a bit on principle, but in practice, how valuable do you really think that these Facebook comments are to the public discourse? Like, what value do you think they're adding? Well, they're obviously valued by the public because the public wants to be able to comment. And uh, I've noted this every single time that any news organization has removed comments or, you know, censored comments, anything with the comments, they are valued by the people that we're supposed to serve, right? People want to be able to add their two cents. If I get something wrong in a news story, somebody will let me know in the comments. So I do think that they're valuable to journalists, Mm -hmm. but the ability to speak back to me, it's just like to say, oh, well, that's what letters to the editor are for, or that's what the public editor is for, or the ombudsman. That internal shit are just ways of saying that you're accountable, right? Like, it's so arrogant to me, the position of we think as public broadcasters that you should pay for us to report stories, whether you like what we report or not. You know, you don't have a say as to whether or not CBC gets funded. And we don't think that you should be able to reply to them where we post them because too many of you are awful racist people. And I wonder if CBC management is not using that valid concern of racialized journalists to get out of something that they don't want to have anything to do with. Like, they don't want that level of accountability. If they could turn off comments across the CBC, which some people are actually saying they should, 
I'm sure they would love to. You don't have to pay for moderators. You don't have to know if people are furious with your coverage. That would be great for CBC management. And I think they're using this trauma issue, this well-being issue, as a way to like dramatically reduce their level of exposure and accountability to the public that they're supposed to serve. Would you feel that way if, say, Vice said that they were turning off their Facebook comments? Or is this more so because the CBC is a public broadcaster? I think that the public broadcaster part of it is a big part of it. Like Canada Land, we don't have comments on Canada Land, the website. But we're also a private company. With the CBC, people feel like, I paid for this. I can say what I want about it. You know, with Canada Land, if you don't like our stuff, don't read it. And it won't come across your feed even if you don't want it to. So I do think that there's a higher standard when you're talking about a public broadcaster. To all of the journalists who say the comments are hurtful to them and their sources, why aren't you calling for the CBC to properly moderate them? I mean, first of all, somebody moderating those comments and sifting through that crap day after day. I mean, who do you think is going to get that job? It's obviously going to be someone who's probably young, precarious sort of position and kind of one where you're inundated with hate. You would have a really high burnout rate even for that job. But that aside, I mean, let's talk about the accountability thing. I'm all about media outlets being held accountable. And I've tried to illustrate that through some of my reporting, including on the CBC. But I don't know. Maybe it's because I don't engage that much with this type of discussion on Facebook. I'm just not entirely convinced that that is the most effective way of holding these media outlets accountable. It's just what I generally see is just really hateful, racist stuff, or sometimes just nonsense, conspiracies, you name it. I don't see a ton of intellectual criticism and accountability on Facebook, to be honest. I see more of that on Twitter, and that probably is my sort of journalist bubble bias. And then, you know, Facebook benefits from, you know, these comments. They benefit from that engagement from the algorithm. People who get the top commenter badge are often these, you know, racist, basically, uh, trolls. And so I think the other piece of it is this is an experiment, right? And all these media outlets, most of them say, hey, there's nothing we can do about this issue. We know that it sucks. We know it sucks for our reporters, but there's just nothing that we can do. I mean, Chorus Entertainment said that to Supriya Duvetti when she quit over the vile racist harassment that she was receiving. It's part of the job, pretty much. And so I guess I'm willing to kind of see how this experiment goes because I feel like maybe it is better than simply just throwing your hands in the air and doing nothing. Yeah, I don't know. These distinctions to me are like... Facebook is garbage. Twitter is where the real conversation happens. There's no shortage of people who say Twitter is a cesspool. Who reads Twitter? Mm -hmm. Like all the people who were very upset with me for criticizing the CBC over this and saying, no, comments should be removed. They were commenting. This is my wider complaint about journalism just as an industry. I can't think of any other industry like this where we talk about the customers with such derision. What do journalists think of the public? Journalists say we provide the public with a vital service upon which democracy itself depends. That's what, something the journalists say. The public is stupid and awful and their comments are worthless is also something the journalists say. And journalists also say, hey, why is our industry dying? The casualness with which we kind of will like blanketly say, I just want to talk to journalists on Twitter, but the YouTube comments, the Facebook comments, there's nothing of value there. I mean, yeah, YouTube comments are even worse than Facebook comments. But honestly, I'm not trying to be condescending. I don't think that there is a black and white solution. I don't think that having to completely remove Facebook comments is great. 
it's a really complicated issue. I just don't know if I've seen a ton of value personally from the Facebook comments, but I do hear what you're saying about how people need to have a way to hold these media outlets accountable. Um, I think in the CBC's case, there are some other alternatives. I mean, a lot of people actually comment on CBC's articles. Their post from yesterday about this very thing had, when I last checked, like 6,000 comments on there. So there are other avenues. The other thing I just wanted to quickly say is on the other side, you know, a lot of these outlets say that they can't do anything about harassment, but some of them don't even cover therapy for their employees. And I think that's a really important thing. It's a tangible thing that can just help people deal with this on the flip side. I guess I'm just alarmed by the like the cheering on of this. Like, yeah, shut down the comments. Like, I'm not so zealous about shutting down forums for conversation. Like, it's a pretty awful thing if, in fact, it's true that the decision is between having a cesspool of racism and violent threats or having no feedback on certain forums, very popular forums. That's not great, you know? Like, <laughs> No, it's not great. But I feel like that is kind of the place we're at right now until somebody thinks of something better. Duly noted. All right. I have something to duly note. Okay, shoot. Our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, at the G7, uh, was asked by a reporter, is this G7 thing going to amount to much? Like all of the things that you're all deciding on here, isn't it just going to be back to the status quo? And he responded, The impacts of this G7 will be felt long after the newspapers you write for will have been used to rock fish. <laughs> Sick burn, JT. <laughs> And people really need to go look at the video of this because he gives this look after he delivers it. Like he thinks he just said the wittiest fucking burn oh, yeah. that, that any man with a goatee has ever delivered. Oh, yeah. He looks so smug when he delivered that punchline. But then there's this interesting thing that you can watch happen in his brain because one of the reporters says, en français? Like, can you repeat that in French so I can have a sound bite? And he kind of like realizes how badly he just fucked up and says maybe I won't do the newspapers and fish thing I might get in trouble for that because we respect the freedom of the press and the independence and the work uh, that you all do in a very important way oh what a schmuck yeah don't want to piss off those French Canadians (laughs) like what is he trying to say like oh I'm not trivial you're trivial Yeah, I mean it just came off as if he was sort of being defensive and it was like a quip that he should have just kept to himself or in the group chat with Jerry Butts, but instead he said it out loud. (laughs) You know, like, every now and then he, like, gets a little bit loose and it's just like, I'm just going to ad lib. And every single time it's, like, the the worst idea. First of all, it doesn't make any sense. Like, long after your newspaper is being used to wrap fish, well, that would be, like, tomorrow. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too. That would be like the next day. Like they're probably being used to wrap fish right now or start a barbecue. (laughs) Just arrogance and ignorance and just this sense that he's just the greatest thing. It's really distasteful. Mm -hmm. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge 
research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Manisha, you had a story recently about a talk radio host who got axed over at AM640, where I was a co-op student when I was 16 years old. What was your story? What happened? So AM640 host Mike Stafford, a source basically sent me a screenshot of him making a slur about Pakistani people in a work chat that had more than 100 global news employees in it. He made this comment and then he left Chorus uh, and a source told me that he was fired. Um, and so this this comes, you know, in 2019, Stafford actually tweeted a couple of derogatory comments about South Asian people. So this follows up on that. Yeah, I think just to give the context and without repeating the slur, and it sort of speaks to his defense, he and his colleagues were discussing Doug Ford and how Doug Ford was talking about the Delta variant, previously known as the Indian variant. And he was joking about, is Doug Ford going to get the terminology correct? Is he going to call it the Indian variant or is he going to call it? And then he used a derogatory term for Pakistani people. Yes. And so the quote was, I had $5 at home that he'd slip and call it the slur variant. And his defense when he got back to you was, that wasn't me using a racial slur. That was me joking about how Doug Ford was likely to use a racial slur. Yeah, he actually reached out to me. Um, he said, you know, that quote means nothing without context. So I offered him the chance to explain the context. I frankly thought the context was pretty clear from the screenshot. It was making a play on something that Doug Ford would say. So yeah, he just said that, you know, he feels like Ford is dog whistling. He admitted to me that he knew that term is a slur. I asked him if he thought of how it would impact any of his BIPOC colleagues in the chat. And he said he didn't think about that. Uh, he felt like he was just dissing the premier. That was his context. 
Canada Land had the story about this guy Stafford in the past that you alluded to, where he had these tweets. Great, another headscarf in Mississauga Queensway triage. He was uh, at the ER. I feel like I'm in Quebec Middle School or some random public service shit. So he's complaining about seeing people with headscarves at the hospital. And then another tweet where he said, complaining again about who has the audacity to use the emergency room. I say to 2019 Mississauga, can you keep your entire fucking family home from hospital emergency when Uncle Apu sprains an ankle? So it's interesting because I asked him about those tweets as well. And he said they were meant to make my co-host laugh. Obviously, it was devastating to so many. His co-host at the time was Supriya Dovedi. And, you know, I asked him at that time if Chorus disciplined him. And he said, quote, I had meetings. He said he also attended a diversity meeting with a woman representing the Islamic faith. And so that was very interesting to me because he did this two years ago. And in the meantime, in the past year, there's been so much negative press about Chorus and their issues with systemic racism. They've had this big reckoning. Their CEO quoted Martin Luther King. Yeah. And so they've had this diversity review and training, and yet he still felt like he could use a slur in a work group chat with more than 100 people. Can I explore this a little bit? Mm -hmm. Like, I have no problem with this guy after those 2019 tweets, with this pattern, it's okay with me that he lost his job. It really is at this point. The host is a powerful position in a media organization like that. And for him to just like continue on with that, that's okay, there's the door. The nuance of this to me is that in just about any other professional iteration that I can conceive of, there's like no professional angle to that kind of opinion in, in a professional context, sharing that kind of language. But this guy is a talk radio host. The brand of AM640 and the cast that this guy is in is a long lineage from like, I don't know, starting with Lenny Bruce daring to use all of the slurs in his routine through to like, there's a whole history, the Howard Stern and growing up watching the movie talk radio and pump up the volume and like, I'm just going to tell it like it is. And the idea that there's something really rebellious and edgy, that's why he got the job. Mm -hmm. Like that is his job. That's a professional thing for him for many, many years, unchallenged. The nuance is not so much about like in defense of Mike Stafford, but for AM640, for Chorus, to be like, we're not even going to say if he was fired or not. He's just not here anymore. And we wash our hands of him completely. If you build a radio station in the format of edgy talk about the day's events, and you're going to hire edgelord dudes to talk all kinds of <laughs> shit, like, and then one day you're like, oh, uh, yeah, he doesn't work here anymore. He shouldn't have done that. Is that a little insufficient? Oh, yeah. I mean, so after I published my initial story, Chorus reached out to me uh, because I had said that my source hadn't heard from management about this incident. And so they said, well, can you correct that? Because we did send out an email. We sent out a couple emails to staff and they forwarded me the email. It said, effective immediately, Mike Stafford is no longer with 640 Toronto. We wish him well in his future endeavors. And now I said, to Chorus, I said, did you discuss the fact that he used a slur? Did that come up in meetings, in your emails? No response. So I don't even know if they actually had a fulsome discussion with their staff, you know, aside from just wishing this guy well and just moving on. 
But obviously, this appears to be not just a one-off at Chorus. There's obviously sort of a history of some of their hosts saying this type of stuff, which is why Supriya said that she quit last year. But the other thing that's interesting to me is who is it that gets to be kind of shoot from the hip, uh, (laughs) edgy and, and off the cuff? You know, it's often white dudes who get to be that way. And when you have people of color, journalists of color who are like that, you know, they often get treated very differently as a liability or maybe they're biased. And I've experienced this myself because I'm very direct and blunt, you know, on Twitter. So, I mean, that's a bit of a tangent, I guess, but it just is something that I think is worth pointing out is who gets to be quote unquote edgy and who doesn't. It's the most interesting part of this to me. My position in this is like I grew up in a culture that kind of told me that that was a cool, rebellious and not just like irreverent and edgy and cool, but that that was a dangerous dude to be. That that was like, you're a real threat to the powers that be. And there's like a through line from Ed the Sock, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, right? Like 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 all of these this persona. But the persona is often like a guy who's just like rudely buttressing. Like there's no threat at all. You know? It's just kind of like asserting in a more blunt and rude way. I'm going to tell it like it is and, and use every racial slur. It usually goes along with some sexism. Like it's, I don't know, it's like Andrew Dice Clay. Like it's, it's not all one guy. There's different shades of this. There's different levels of it. But you look at it in a modern context and you're like, wow, that dude is not transgressing at all. Oh, yeah. It's pretty much like preserving the status quo, uh, kind of appealing to the worst um, in some of our audiences And we can't ignore sort of the context here. We just had a mass killing of a Muslim family in London, Ontario. And I think media outlets are culpable for normalizing Islamophobia. It's just true. And I think that talk radio is a big part of that. Well, you know, just to get to the meat and potatoes of this from an AM640 point of view, it's one thing for the CBC to get rid of Wendy Mesley when she used a racial slur in editorial meetings. It's sort of consistent with the CBC's values and what they're trying to present, that that wouldn't be tolerated. But if you've built the business on edgy talk, where do you go from there? Like, And it's interesting because, like, you've been covering them and we've been covering them, and there is a will to change things. I mean, why hire Supriya in the first place if you're not trying to change things? But I'll tell you, that's a format. That's not one dude. If tomorrow they stopped having opinionated edgelords, the audience that they built is expecting that. The business goes away tomorrow. It's not like they've built up another audience, a younger audience or a more diverse audience. They're fully invested in that kind of content. I find that kind of fascinating right now. Like, so where do they go? What do they do tomorrow? Like, it's just going to keep happening. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Danielle Smith, who's another one, of course, is radio host, quit uh, earlier in the year saying that the political mob or whatever, the you know mob mentality was coming for her job or was impeding her ability to do her job. But you're right, it's more of a systemic issue. They sort of have built the brand around this. And Supriya, it seems like, was the outlier. And that's another problem is when you've kind of built up this brand, you are courting racism, and then you kind of hire one POC here and there, just kind of drop them into that. That's not going to solve the problem. And it's also going to be hellish for that person. Yeah, it's an existential problem that I think is wider than even just talk radio, because it's it's the chickens coming home to roost of if you neglect entire demographics for decades, then 
okay, great. There's a dawning consciousness of like, well, we shouldn't be doing this kind of content anymore. Or that's not acceptable anymore. But you've built up nothing else. Mm-hmm. For some of these businesses, if they stop doing it, they have no business. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, I guess you could look at Stafford's departure as progress, but I'm really curious to see what is the next move? How is this going to become sort of more of a systemic change rather than just, oh, he said the quiet part out loud. Now we have no choice but to can him. All right, that shortcuts for this week. Thanks, Manisha. Thanks. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read what you send. We're on Twitter at Canadaland. Manisha, where can people find you? Uh, uh, <laughs> at Manisha Krishnan. Our website is canadaland.com, where everybody should listen to uh, The Backbench with Fatima Syed and Romeo Saganash and Lena Manifi this week. Uh, it's a fantastic conversation on the best politics show in Canada. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of our podcasts, and if you happen to be using an Apple device, just go into Apple Podcasts and press one button. It's so easy. Go check it out. Or go to canadaland.com slash join. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.